so we had to keep the fish inside. And he pushed me off and I broke my collarbone. They heard strange noises in the night and one of them was scared. It's time for The Appleseed, a show filled with all kinds of stories for you and your family. Sometimes a great story can help you find the words to express your thoughts and feelings. That's what we believe anyway. And we hope that in today's stories, you'll find something meaningful that will open up great conversations between you and your loved ones. I'm your host, Sam Payne. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you're reaching out to strangers or at least people you don't know very well? in search of connection or in search of new opportunities? Well, we got a couple of stories like that to share with you today. It can be really daunting to put yourself out there, but it can also be very rewarding as we were thinking about this. Our producer, Brian Tanner, asked his wife for a story about strangers reaching out to each other for these kinds of opportunities or connection. And she remembered a story of one of the great mathematical minds of all time. You gotta know, she herself is a mathematician. And she told us the story of Srinivasa Ramanujan. Ramanujan grew up in India around the turn of the 20th century. And he was largely self-taught in math and he never studied at a university. So how did he come to the attention of the wider mathematical world? Well, he did it by writing an unsolicited letter, reaching out, as it were, to strangers, a cold call, if you will. He wrote to one of the top mathematicians at Cambridge University at the time, a man by the name of G.H. Hardy. And here's just a little sample from that letter. Dear sir, it said, I beg to introduce myself to you. I'm now about 23 years of age. I have had no university education, but I have undergone the ordinary school course. After leaving school, I have been employing the spare time at my disposal to work at mathematics. Being inexperienced, I would very highly value any advice you give me, requesting to be excused for the trouble I give you. Well, along with that note, he included in this letter many pages of mathematical formulas and theorems that he'd worked out on his own. And Hardy was so amazed by the work that he immediately arranged for Ramanujan to travel from India to Cambridge to study with him. And together, they made some of the most significant mathematical discoveries of the 20th century. And it all started with Ramanujan putting himself out there and writing a letter to a stranger. Now, Not every story of reaching out to someone you don't know has such a dramatic ending, but in the stories we're bringing you today, you'll hear about a few people who tried it and had some enriching experiences. And first up, we have a story from Dolores Hydock, the Alabama-based storyteller and actor. She'll tell us about making the more than 800-mile journey back to Reading, Pennsylvania to attend a high school reunion. She had big hopes to see many of her dear friends, friends she hadn't seen in years. And she was also nervous that she might no longer fit in with those guys. If they are mean to you, if they ignore you, if this is awful in any one of the million ways it can be awful, you do not have to stay. You can just leave. That's Dolores Hydock giving herself a pep talk and maybe an escape plan as she prepares to attend her high school reunion. After that, I'll share a personal memory about writing a letter to a celebrity who had made a big impression on me and the wholly unexpected response I got back from him. That's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. And finally, we'll hear the story of a musician who decided to look up his name twins, people who share his same name in the world, and the surprising direction his life took after some of those name twins accepted his out-of-the-blue friend requests. Somehow they accepted my friend requests, and, you know, their stuff starts showing up on your newsfeed, and you kind of get to know them, and it's like, we could do a band. That voice you just heard is Paul O'Sullivan talking about his newfound friendships with Paul O'Sullivan, Paul O'Sullivan, and Paul O'Sullivan, respectively. 
It's a fun story, and you won't want to miss it. That's later in the hour. So let's get things started, shall we, with a story from the Alabama by way of Pennsylvania storyteller, Dolores Hydock. She's got a wonderful story called Big Number Reunion. We recorded it live before our terrific studio audience in the Appleseed Performance Studio. Away we go. so much for being here tonight. It was a big number, a really big number high school reunion. <laughs> and for some reason, I wanted to go. How many of you have been back to your high school reunion? You live to tell about it. Well, I don't know about you, but I grew up and went to high school in Reading, Pennsylvania. I've lived my entire adult life in Birmingham, Alabama. That's 853 miles apart. And so I hadn't been back to a reunion since our 11th. We didn't get it together in time to have a 10th. <laughs> but this was going to be a big number. The, the invitation came, and I thought, oh, come on. It'll be an adventure. And so that's why at 5.30 on a Friday evening in mid-November a few years ago, I was pulling into the parking lot of the Best Western West Reading Hotel. I only had time to unpack, change clothes, grab my Google Maps printout, and head out to this barn grill where we were having the event. There was going to be drinks in the lounge beforehand, then a sit-down dinner in the adjacent dining room, and then anybody could stay and talk who wanted to stay and talk. I found the place, this dark brown cedar shingled building way out in some new development in a part of town I did not know I pulled into the parking lot. Oh, thank goodness, there are other cars here. I'm not the first one here. I parked the car, checked my lipstick in the rearview mirror, gave myself a pep talk, Dolores. You live 853 miles from here. You have no family here anymore. You don't know anybody who lives here anymore. If they are mean to you, if they ignore you, if this is awful in any one of the million ways it can be awful, <laughs> You do not have to stay. You can just leave. Grocery stores around here stay open until 10 o'clock at night. You can get a couple of pints of medicinal Haagen-Dazs if you need to. <laughs> I picked up the yearbook that I'd brought along to help me remember names. Flipped through the pages. Oh, look at these pictures. The boys on the basketball team are wearing shorts that are short, and the cheerleader skirts come down to their knees. That's how big a number this big number reunion was. <laughs> the gravel of the parking lot crunched under the heels of my shoes as I headed toward the front door. There was a man coming from the opposite direction toward me. He looked about my age. I didn't recognize him. But there were 204 kids in our graduating class, and it had been a long time. I decided to be brave. Hi, I said, with a big smile, as much confidence as I could fake. I see you found this place too, huh? Way out here in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, I hope so. I own it. <laughs> Not a classmate, after all. He held the door open for me. I went inside took my eyes a minute to adjust to the dim light of the lounge. There were people standing in groups of threes and fours, looking at their copy of the yearbook, pointing and groaning. I went over to the sign-in table, found my name tag with the one-inch square black-and-white copy of my yearbook photo stapled to the corner. I pinned it on. Mike D'Angelo, reunion committee chair, came over to greet me. Mike D'Angelo is gorgeous. Tall, tan, built, beautiful, big smile. Little skinny Mike D'Angelo who could hotwire anything with a motor in it from sixth grade on and now has a chain of high-end car repair shops. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Where to begin? I head over to the refreshments table. Krusty Morelli is there, loading up his paper plate with cubes of cheese and boiled shrimp. Krusty Morelli, who was defensive tackle on our terrible high school football team. He looks me up and down, squints at my name tag, says, Hey, hi, Doc. You're looking good. I never would have recognized you. <laughs> he gestures toward an empty chair next to his. Krusty Morelli inviting me to sit next to him? This is going to be an adventure. 
I sit down in a circle with Krusty Morelli, Pete Tortorici, Frank Lashinsky, and Carl the Crusher Cipero, four jocks who never, ever spoke to me in high school. In high school, I was so hopelessly unathletic that even at pickup basketball games in gym class, I was always the last one picked for a team, and I'd spend most of the gym class period just sitting on the visitor's bench. But here I was, sitting with these four guys, listening to them do killer impersonations of the football coach, the vice principal, the school janitor. They tell hilarious stories from detention where they spent more time in high school than I spent in four years of English class. <laughs> I realized how much I missed back then by turning my homework in on time. <laughs> About 60 of us show up for the reunion out of 204. That's not terrible. But none of my friends are there. I mean... There's somebody from Spanish class and somebody from Glee Club, but none of the girls I ate lunch with, none of the kids I hung out with after school, none of the boys I was so in love with, neither of the two girls who were my very best friends for four years of high school. I'd really hope to see Deidre and Carol and Dennis, especially Dennis. <laughs> but they weren't there. I don't know why. I wandered up to a little group. They were talking about the new modern high school that had been built over there near the bypass and how our old high school building closed now for years was maybe going to be renovated into a senior living retirement community. We're standing there trying to think of a good title for the new facility. Our best idea is lost our faculty's towers. <laughs> they announced we're all to go into the dining room for our sit-down dinner. I end up at a little table for three with Donna DeFazio and Jake Werner. Jake Werner always had a reputation as a ladies' man, and I know Jake Werner made a beeline for that table as soon as he saw that Donna DeFazio was sitting there because Jake Werner has had his eye on Donna DeFazio all night long. Though to be true, pretty much every guy in that room has had his eye on Donna DeFazio all night long. I figure Donna's just used to it by now. I mean, back in high school, on a Friday night dance... The guys would stand there, slack-jawed, when Donna walked into the gym, stiletto heels clicking on that hardwood floor, skirt short as a carpenter's apron, <laughs> cracking that juicy fruit so loud you could hear it at the visiting team's basketball goal. <laughs> Any of you remember or know of the movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It was kind of a hybrid live actors and cartoon characters. And one of the animated characters was Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> Jessica Rabbit was this va-va-voom femme fatale voiced by Kathleen Turner. And Jessica Rabbit had a great line in that movie. She said, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Well, back in high school, my friends Deidre and Carol and I didn't know if Donna DeFazio was bad, but she sure was drawn that way. <laughs> of course, now, all these years later, she looks fabulous. When she got out of high school, she went to cosmetology school became a hairdresser. Now she owns a chain of hair salons and day spas and looks 15 years younger than any of the rest of us. I say that to her. She says, ah, oh, I've had work. Eyes, lips, tummy, tush, the neck is the latest. I recommend my surgeon to all my clients so he gives me a good discount. I'm his best advertising. I look over at Jake Werner. Jake, I say, you're looking pretty good too. Look at that thick head of hair you still got. Oh, this, he says, lifting it up. It's a rug. <laughs> I had chemotherapy two years ago. It never grew back. But you want to look your best for the ladies. Big wink to Donna DeFazio, who lifts up her water glass in such a way that she flashes a big diamond ring on her left hand. Later, in the ladies' room, she tells me that the diamond is real. She bought it for herself, and it's useful in warding off unwanted attention. <laughs> like Jake Warner, I say. She rolls her eyes. Believe me, she says, that ship is never going to sail. When dinner is finished, two of the reunion committee members get up to a microphone at the front of the room. Is this on? Is this on? They've organized a trivia quiz. 
we all turn our chairs to the front. Question number one, who was the homecoming queen? Oh, everybody remembers that. Sandy Michaels. Who could forget Sandy Michaels? Oh, she was so gorgeous. Long, swingy, blonde hair. How did she make her hair do that? I mean, back then, our hairstyling products were not texturizers and styling mousse. Back then, we had orange juice can rollers and dippity-doo. <laughs> Question number two, who was the girls' PE teacher? Everybody remembers that. We call it out in unison. Miss Propanowitz. Miss Propanowitz, who was built like a linebacker and not only felt like it was her job and responsibility to make our bodies stronger, but it was her job to strengthen our moral fiber, too. If you had gym class on the Friday afternoon when there was going to be a Friday night dance in the gym that evening, she would line us up on the bleachers and say, Ladies, this evening when you are dancing with a boy, remember to leave room for your guardian angel between you. So we do pretty well on the quiz. We remember Sandy Michaels. We remember Miss Propanowitz. We remember the Tuesday special in the cafeteria. Hamburgers, mashed potatoes with gravy, and canned corn. We remember the name of the school newspaper, Hillside Echoes. We remember the name of the alternate school newspaper, the one that actually managed to put out two issues before the principal shut it down. <laughs> Voices from the Valley. A voice, not an echo. <laughs> Most of us can't remember where we left our car keys, but we remember those things. Another committee member comes up to the microphone, reads off a list of names. Classmates who died. More than you'd think. More than you'd like to think. Then there's thank yous all around, and people gather up purses and coats and spouses and head home. I don't have any place to go except back to the hotel, so I stick around. Nine of us stick around, all women, as it turns out, all gathered around this big wooden table, a long wooden bench on either side. I sit down, look around the table, and realize I don't know any of these women. I never had a class with any of them. I was never in an extracurricular activity with any of them. And it wasn't just our high school experience that was different. Our after high school experience was different, too. I left. I moved 853 miles away. These women all stayed in Reading. They all chose to build their lives and homes and families and careers in Reading. They were the home team. I was just a visitor, just there for one game. But they were so nice to me. You live where? Alabama? That's what, like a thousand miles away? And you came to the reunion? Man, they should have given you a prize. They made me sit right in the center of the table so that I could be part of all the conversations going on around me. Conversations about kids and parents and jobs and doctor's appointments and vacation plans. The exact same conversations I might have had with any of my friends back in Birmingham. Karen Antonelli tells the table, how her husband got her a kickboxing set for her last birthday because she had told him she wanted more exercise. She says, the only exercise I ever got from that kickboxing set was hauling it up to the attic, then dragging it down to the cellar, then lugging it out to the garage, and finally slinging it into the trunk of my car so I could take it to Goodwill. <laughs> we all laugh. We all know exactly what she means. We've all been there. No matter how similar or different our life experience has been, we've all ended up at pretty much the same place. Older, tireder, kids grown, parents gone, friends gone, eyesight definitely gone, <laughs> hair and stamina and mostly illusions gone. In other words, able to be kinder to each other and ourselves than we ever were in high school. The owner, the guy I met in the parking lot, sticks his head around the corner, last call, big hugs all around, we promise we'll stay in touch, promise we'll all come back to the next bigger number reunion. The gravel in the parking lot crunches under the heels of my shoes as I head back to my car. <laughs> I am so 
glad I came to this reunion. I am so glad I didn't know anybody there or I'd have wasted the whole evening talking to them and I'd have missed this chance to go back to high school and for one glorious night, sit on the bench with the home team. Dolores Hydock with the story Big Number Reunion. That final idea she shared in that story about coming back and feeling like for at least one high school reunion's amount of time, she got to be a member of the home team. Well, that really stuck with me. I like that idea a lot. We all have different feelings about home and about our place there. And Dolores' story stirred my imagination. I imagine a guy, myself, let's say, visiting his hometown on a day when everyone is out and about, and he sees kids who are a lot like he is, a lot like he and his friends were, at least, when he was a kid. And standing there at the carnival, he thinks about his own life, having taken him far away from his hometown, while some people stayed. Weird, right? Where a story can take your imagination. This one took me just a step further. I wrote that imagined idea down and made a song about it. Can I sing it to you? It's called The Home Team. Carnival Day, and between the corn dogs and funnel cake, I saw the teenage boys all revving their motors, small town kings of cracking voices and acne. And above the scream of the tilt-a-whirl, heard the whispers of all the high school girls, and they're dressed for local rock and roll. Sun on their hair and they smell like cotton candy And you can have the far off places You can have the city lights Take your jet plane anywhere you want Today it feels alright to be rooting for the home team was that age with all their folks and I wore their clothes and I told their jokes and some of their moms and some of their dads that built up houses and put down roots without me because I went away just as soon as I could far out of sight of the neighborhood And I saw some things and I got some work Same size fish in a pond so big it could drown me It could be the day that you are living The very dream you thought you would You may be gone but as for me Today it sure feels good to be rooting for the home team And this is why I'm back on Carnival Day Between the corn dogs and the funnel cake To see the teenage boys all revving their motors I tip my hat to the whole thing And above the scream of the tilt-a-whirl Hear the holy wisdom of the high school girls Coming on to the sound of rock and roll And the beating heart of what it is To be on the home team Oh, to be on the home team
The Home Team, a song inspired by Dolores Hydock's story about going back to a high school reunion. That's where Dolores' story took me in my mind. Where did it take you? We'll find out where it took a couple of friends in a moment as we chat about that story around the desk with our producer, Brian Tanner, and a special guest as well. I'm Sam Payne. ago, it was our pleasure to hear Dolores Hydock, storyteller from Alabama, telling the story about, well, she called the story Big Number Reunion, going back to a, a high school reunion and, and having a really kind of substantive experience there. And uh, to chat about that story, I'm thrilled to have around the desk with me our producer, Dr. Brian Tanner, and the host of The Lisa Show, the wonderful show produced by BYU Radio, Lisa Valentine Clark. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. And, you know, I love uh, I love this story because I've been to a few reunions. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and, and I will say that uh, in my last uh, high school reunion, uh, they had arranged with the the convenience store that we all used to slough school to oh, go get yeah. sodas from to provide all of the soda cups. Oh, wow. No way. Uh, oh, that's pretty cool. So, yeah. Where does a story like this take you when you think Well, about it? it's funny that you should ask because I just got back from my 30th high school reunion oh, wow. in Lincoln, Nebraska. Big number reunion. Oh, wow. And it was a big number reunion. And you were traveling and just I like her. And I traveled yeah. just like her. I related to so much, especially like this tender like moment. I think, you know, my dad plans all of his reunions. He's 80 years old. Wow. Mm-hmm. And they have them more often now because there's fewer of them left. Yeah. And he said, you know, your 10-year reunion, you're trying to show off, and your 20-year reunion, still a little bit of that of like, hey, how you doing? And you're kind of looking around and judging yourself. Mm-hmm. 30th, you're just happy to be there and to yeah. see them because yeah. you've lost some. And I'm, yeah. and just like she had mentioned, you know, you lost some more. And it is a little bit like a uh, time-traveling machine just to remember a different version of yourself. And yeah. that's the, the big takeaway that I had. And you... you uh, 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 one of the things that I really love about Dolores's story is this notion of uh, the home team. You yeah. know, she goes back and she finds those people who, who, who stayed, who had a different experience than she did. Right? She, she left, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and certainly her life unfolded in the way that it did. And she goes back and finds those people who have kind of made a life for themselves in in that place. You know, for whom the high school reunion is just. A, a, a short drive across town, yeah. you know, not a drive across country, you know. Does something like that bring up thoughts oh, for you when you're absolutely. traveling back to your hometown? Yeah, you're getting on the plane, and you're packing, yeah. and you're just thinking, wow, I'm going home. What does that feel like? And mm-hmm. all the familiar smells and, and sights that – and. You know, at the reunion, inside jokes and and yeah. people that I hadn't thought about for thirty years, or you know, and and it really does take you back. And I did think to myself, you know, what would my life look like if I had never left? If I had mm. stayed and made a good life, what what would it look like? Not not in a judgment way, but it it did feel different. And it was also really interesting us talking about people who lived there and decided not to come to the reunion. Yeah, you know, mm. people who it would have been a five minute drive yeah. and they didn't come. Mm-hmm. And and what that means, you know, yeah. it, it it was really it was really interesting. Or even the fact that thirty years yes. later, it still means something, you yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, and it did. Yeah, mm-hmm. those foundational experiences drive some of the things that we feel for the rest of our lives. Well, Lisa, I can speak as one of those people who just didn't make didn't bother to drive really? just a little ways up the road to go to my twentieth reunion. Um, and I had gone to my five-year reunion, and I remember thinking, like, I don't want to be thinking backwards and mm-hmm. looking backwards. Like, it was a time in my life where it was like, I'm going forward. I'm doing other things. I'm in college. I, you know, I have yeah. all these goals. And all this is here is just a bunch of people saying, remember this, remember that. And I'm just like, I want to be looking forward. And uh, so me and my wife were just playing boggle. In our kitchen, you know, wow. and I started getting yeah. texts saying, like, why aren't you here? <laughs> oh, did you know Lindsay came all the way from Germany? She was hoping to see you. And at that moment, I kind of had this pit in my stomach moment where I'm just like, you know, I, I do care about Lindsay. Oh, my gosh. 
I, what is she up to, yeah. you know? And and I had this feeling of regret that that I wish that I had been there, you know? And um, But I've had other opportunities to connect with people from high school recently through mm. a funeral, you know, mm. which is a much more solemn occasion. But it's it's been a really good thing to see yeah. some of those friends from high school. And in fact— uh, last night, I went to a concert with with one of those friends. Um, he just kind of called me up out of the blue. He was just like, hey, saw you at the funeral. Thought maybe you'd want to go to this concert with me. Wow. And I was kind of <laughs> thinking, what's this going to be like? What are we going to have to talk about? You know? And I, I thought it might be more of that. Remember this? Remember that? You know? But it was like... Uh, it was kind of like what Dolores was telling in here. Yeah. We were talking about things that are happening in our lives now with yeah. our with our kids, with our careers, uh, and it was just kind of cool to meet up with somebody <laughs> that I that knows me so well. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's there's really something to just holding on to the people who are your exact same age, grew up in your exact same place, because it's just like, this person gets me. They know where I came from. Yeah, in a different way than I think that people who meet you after those, you know, really important moments of development in your life, right? I felt that, you know, uh, I felt a little nervous about going because so so much of my life is public because of my, sure. yeah. you know, job. People will say, hey, I saw you on this, or I've, I've been following you, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. for the good stuff and the hard stuff. Yeah. And so I I really wanted to get to those meaty conversations of, like, like I had a friend who sat me, and that's why I loved, like, Dolores' story and account, where, like, at the end, where you're just sitting, like, like, this is what my life looks like now. This is what's really, really hard. And I could just go that place because I thought we had had all of these discussions 30 years old, you know, over about like, <laughs> what are our lives? And these are my hopes and dreams and yeah. just been absolutely vulnerable. And for some of those people, it was as if no time had passed and it felt safe. And it was really like a connecting thing to say, yeah, I went through this. It was really hard. Mm-hmm. And we could just sit with each other mm-hmm. in it. And it, it felt very connecting in a way yeah. that I think that I hadn't anticipated it would have. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, of course, Dolores Hydock's story and and really what we're talking about in today's episode, this notion of reaching out across a divide to somebody that you may not know or may not know very well, brought back for me a memory that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Every once in a while, I get together with friends from high school. It doesn't happen now as much as it used to, but it still happens. And in those gatherings, we sometimes find ourselves reminiscing. I mean, you can imagine, right? And not too long ago, I found myself reminiscing with high school friends about a class we all loved. It was 1987, and I was a sophomore at American Fork High School. The course was called The History of Musical Theater, a course built from scratch by our wonderful music teacher, Lois Johnson. She brought records to listen to, and we sang and workshopped pieces from every period of the American musical. For one class project, I sang Only Make Believe, Only Make Believe, I Love You, from an old musical called Showboat. And my singing partner was Kristen Kerr, who was a very kind person, but who could hardly keep from giggling. As for all my earnestness, I sounded almost exactly like Kermit the Frog. In any case, somewhere in the second half of the class, Miss Johnson introduced us to Stephen Sondheim. She played on the classroom turntable a couple of tunes from Sondheim's musical Sunday in the Park with George, a musical about the beautiful, enormous painting Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte by Georges Seurat. It's one of only ten musicals to win the Pulitzer Prize, and that painting was made between 1884 and 1886, and it now hangs in the Art Institute of Chicago. I've seen it there. I know, I know, my musical theater geekiness is showing just a little, right? It's all due to Miss Johnson's class so long ago. Anyway, in addition to the Sunday in the Park with George stuff, she also played for us a couple of tunes from Sondheim's grisly masterpiece, Sweeney Todd, about an unfortunate barber escaped from prison and come back to London to exact his revenge on the judge who sent him up the river. And that music expanded my understanding of what music 
could do. It was kind of an enormous, kind of shocking experience. In fact, the experience propelled me to the library. I might not have gone to the library, but my Sunday school teachers had told me that the library was where I'd find my future wife. So I was kind of hanging out there anyway, just to see. In the end, by the way, that didn't pan out. Anyway, at the library, there was a volume among the green leather-bound current biographies. Remember actual reference books in which I found a mailing address for Mr. Sondheim? Unbelievable, I know, but that's sort of what current biographies were for, those old books. I don't even think they have them anymore. I didn't have anywhere else to channel my new and electric enthusiasm for the musical experience I'd just had, so I took a sheet of college-ruled notepaper from my Trapper Keeper folder and wrote a longish letter to Stephen Sondheim himself in my best handwriting. I told Mr. Sondheim about the experience I'd just had with Sweeney Todd, and I went even further. I'm a little embarrassed by the hubris of it, but I asked Mr. Sondheim in the letter where I might possibly find a copy of the sheet music for the duet Kiss Me, sung by the romantic leads of the play. Well, I sent the letter, and sending the letter got the bug out of my system for a while. I calmed down. Some months later, in September, having nearly forgotten my library experience, I got a package in the mail from New York. In the package was a little letter typed on a half sheet of stationery and the double LP of Sunday in the Park with George. The letter read, Dear Samuel Payne, thank you for the terrific letter. As for Kiss Me, the place to find it would be in the vocal score, which is published by Revelation Music in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It's available through stores that handle scores of sheet music of shows, or you can order it directly from Revelation. If, for whatever reason, you can't get it or have any further trouble, let me know, and I can Xerox the pages from the score for you. You imply that you don't have a record of Sunday in the Park with George. It's a score I like very much, so please accept the enclosed with my thanks for your enthusiasm. Yours sincerely, Stephen Sondheim. The package is, even today, among my treasures. It was also the door through which I went to discover and digest all the Stephen Sondheim tunes I could get my hands on. My fondest Sondheim memories are the most intimate, my college friends and I performing Sondheim tunes for each other in workshops and classes. I'll never forget watching Laurie Schoonmacher and Lisa Handley perform Every Day a Little Death from Sondheim's A Little Night Music. You know, every song in that show is written at least partly in some variation of 3-4 time. Is my geekiness showing again? Anyway, I'll never forget workshopping Too Many Mornings, Too Many Mornings, Waking and Pretending I Reach for You, the lovely Sad Love Regret duet from Sondheim's show Follies. I sang it with Holly. Fowers in our scene study class. I'll never forget playing Leon Cholgosh, the guy who assassinated President William McKinley in 1901. Cholgosh is a character in Stephen Sondheim's musical Assassins. I'll never forget singing with my chamber choir pals, our choir professor's preposterously lovely arrangement of I Remember, I Remember Sky, It Was Blue as Ink, from Sondheim's TV musical Evening Primrose, and on and on and on, right? And still, even now, as a total grown-up, I still get walloped from time to time by a Stephen Sondheim song. A few years ago, as I was writing a melody myself for the song Fear No More, from Shakespeare's play, Cymbeline, I went back to a version of that same song that Sondheim wrote. He put it in a musical called The Frogs, which debuted entirely in the Yale swimming pool in 1974. The song is very beautiful and melancholy. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone and t- thy wages, golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers come to dust. Anyway, you may or may not feel the same way about Stephen Sondheim's music as I do. Chances are, though, you feel that way about something, something that thrills you enough to kind of geek out over it. 
I don't know how my life might have gone differently if I hadn't written that letter as a kid to a complete stranger, and maybe that correspondence was more important than just how much I liked the music, even though, as you can tell, I did, and still do, a lot. Somehow, Sondheim's response made me feel, I don't know, a little bigger, as if, small-town kid though I was, I could connect with the larger world in a way that meant something, like I was a person worth communicating with. It helped. It helped a lot. Maybe you've reached out to someone you don't know very well, and maybe, just maybe, they reached back. Or maybe there was some other way that you first discovered you might be worth having a conversation with, worth engagement by the larger world. And maybe that's a story worth telling around the kitchen table or the living room, even if the story, no matter how you try, is filled with a certain amount of geeking out. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks so much for joining me for that uh, entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. It's been a pleasure to chat about high school reunions and that Dolores Hydock story, big number reunion, with our producer, Dr. Brian Tanner, and our very special guest, Lisa Valentine Clark, host of The Lisa Show, which, of course, you can find on the BYU Radio app or by Googling The Lisa Show. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Go Knights. Yeah, that's right. Such a pleasure to have you with us today for an hour of stories about people putting themselves out there, reaching out to strangers or at least people they may not know very well for connection or opportunity. And of course, we started off the hour with Dolores Hydock talking about the satisfying connection she made at her high school reunion with people she didn't really know before that. And now we've got a story about an unlikely collaboration that starts with a bunch of friend requests sent out to perfect strangers. So just twice that you've got to make it worth it all decide you've been that person you heard playing the guitar on that track that's paul o'sullivan and the guy on the drums that's paul o'sullivan the vocals are by a guy named paul o'sullivan and the bass is played by paul o'sullivan <laughs> oh, cool. A one-man band, you might be thinking, but no. Each of those Paul O'Sullivans in the band is a separate guy, each named Paul O'Sullivan. But the story of the band starts with Paul from Baltimore, Maryland, or as they call him in the band, Baltimore Paul. Hey, I am Paul O'Sullivan, but within the band, I am known as Baltimore Paul. And his music career started when he was pretty young. I would say for me it started in sixth grade because, I mean, I went to a public school in Maryland, but it was cool because they had music built into it. Like, the, the music class that I had in sixth grade, it was like you would spend half the semester with one teacher and they had a bunch of keyboards in that room. And then you spend the other half in the room with all the guitars. And that year, he noticed everyone seemed to be better at guitar than he was. So he decided to do something about it. So I got guitar, like private guitar lessons over that summer and then came back in seventh grade and I'm like doing these crazy scales all over the place. And like, um, so it was really kind of the competitive drive that initially got me into playing guitar. And as Paul continued practicing the guitar, it became one of his favorite hobbies. Between guitar and tennis, his high school career was pretty full, pretty busy. He eventually helped form a garage band that was able to perform in a school-wide talent show. I mean, that's still the best single moment of my entire life was when we were standing behind the curtain. It was, and we had just gotten word that the entire auditorium had sold out. And you know, we were just this like measly garage band, but here we are playing in front of like 900 people. And like, just, just that feeling before the curtains open, I, don't, I, I can't describe it. That feeling kept driving Paul to pursue music. He joined another band during his college days and began teaching guitar as a way to pay for school. 
His guitar lessons continued even after he graduated, however, and he had a lot of students. One of my students was at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Bruce brought him on stage. He got to sing a song with Bruce Springsteen. I had no idea this happened. He came back to his lesson the next week and he was like, oh, I just sang with Bruce Springsteen. So it was just, you know, and it, I, I loved teaching. It was like so fun to, to you know, because I, I love playing guitar and I love explaining things to people. So this was a good way to do both at once. Paul continued to love music. But things in the music world started to slow down for him a little bit. In the meantime, one of his friends had a cool experience with one of his name twins. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the term, a name twin is simply someone else who shares your same name. Most of us have a few of those. Because my, my friend Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, he's in Maryland just like me, and he met his name twin who's in the Pacific Northwest. They ended up having lunch together in Washington, D.C., um, and so they, he posted a picture of the two of them together and I was like, wow, that's really cool. And it kind of got the wheels spinning in my mind. Like, you know, I wonder what my name twins are up to. And those wheels kept spinning for a while until Paul eventually made a search on social media and he found a few of his own name twins. Somehow they accepted my friend request, and, you know, their stuff starts showing up on your newsfeed and you kind of get to know them. And it's like, wait, he plays bass. This guy also plays guitar. You know, it's like, we could do a band. And a lot of times, a fun idea might be just that, an idea. But Baltimore Paul saw an opportunity for more, and he decided to reach out. By 2016, we had our first song out, um, and that was kind of more just for friends and family, you know, just kind of almost an inside joke. Um, And then after that, we decided to make a music video Sadly, I had a few health issues, so I was kind of out of commission for a few years. But then we made the music video, and it got a lot of traction right off the bat. By then, 2020 had rolled around, and more and more people were beginning to work from home as the pandemic started interrupting everyday life. While everyone else had to adjust, the Paul O'Sullivan Band was in their element. All we had ever known was working remotely. So we're like, this doesn't really affect us much. If anything, it gives us more time at home, bored, to to record music, so that's exactly what we did. They recorded some covers, they released an EP, and they've made some of their own original songs, like this. And it was at this point that they started to gain the notice of some pretty important people. Have you ever met someone with the same exact name as you? Paul O'Sullivan has. The Paul O'Sullivan Band. Paul O'Sullivan. A guy named Paul O'Sullivan was really, really curious. Let's meet these four Pauls, everybody. Paul, 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 and Paul. Hey, guys. And I was working like 16-hour days just trying to keep up with it. Like, we did like four national TV appearances. We did like all sorts of radio stuff. We were in People Magazine, Forbes Magazine. And, you know, I felt like the prettiest girl at the dance because everybody wanted to talk to us. And then it was like, then it just went away. It's kind of like the, the notion of like going viral. It's like you're the flavor of the week for like a week and a half. And then it just kind of, they move on to the next thing. <laughs> Being an internet sensation can apparently be kind of exhausting. Um, but I ended up getting shingles at the end of it all because I was just like pushing myself so much. And that's like one of the biggest lessons I've taken out of this is, is just trying to pace myself because it's so easy to just like burn yourself out if you're not careful. But they weren't completely burned out, not by any means. They're still working on getting their music out there. They've still been appearing on television and radio. And they're working on getting everyone together to perform a live show. World, And I, you know, I understand there's a lot going on, but it's like you got to find those things that make your soul come alive. You know what I mean? And you need to lean into those things. Perhaps one of the most amazing parts of the story is the fact that all of the Paulo Sullivans, despite sharing a name, come from such different backgrounds. The first one that I ever met was Manchester Paul. And honestly, if he wasn't so nice when I reached out, this whole thing probably never would have happened. As you might guess, Manchester Paul lives in Manchester, England. Somebody asked us, like, if you guys were the Beatles, who would be which member? Um, And he would be, I would consider him kind of the George Harrison of the band. 
because kind of the, the quiet beetle as, as they call them but because he is more quiet but he he talks with his instrument he's like like one of the best bass players i've ever you know seen seen play the next paul is rotterdam paul from the netherlands with him being in the netherlands i thought that he ex- exclusively spoke dutch so i used google translate to try to reach out to him and he like laughed at me he's like i speak english as well you can you can just uh Send your message in English. I was like, okay, that's a relief because I don't know Dutch. Finally, there's Pennsylvania Paul from, well, Pennsylvania. He's the only one that I've ever met in real life. And now I think it's been four times that we've met. Um, We even like vacation together. We go to Assateague Island in Maryland where the wild ponies come up to your your campsite. Um, And yeah, it's... He's, he's just full of life and um, very, very easy to talk to. That's where Baltimore Paul says the real story is for him, in the fact that they share the same names, but they also share musical tastes, even though they're from such disparate backgrounds and age groups and their individual musical abilities allowed them to come together and actually form a band. And what are the odds that we would all find musicians? But for me as a musician, Myself, it's really like, you know, I've played with other musicians and you just hit it off with people or you don't. You know, it's kind of, it's either there or it isn't. Um, and with these guys, the, the chemistry's there. And maybe there's a lesson in that. You know, there are a lot of people who are a lot like you, but you also share the world with people who are very different from you, from very different walks of life, very different backgrounds. But even with those people, if we can find some common ground there are ways to get along, make the world a better place. And I always like that quote about like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. So in a way we're kind of like, I, I would jokingly say we're like the international space station of music because we each have members, member nations, you know, it's like this guy's for, you know, two, two of us are from Europe and two of us are from America. And that that's, that's kind of the, the essence of the band in my mind is that like, I want, you know, the younger generation to see that like, oh, adults from different countries can actually get along. So yeah, let's all be the change we want to see. And like the Paul O'Sullivan band, maybe make some music along the way. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories can change your family's world. Before we go, we wanted to say thank you to those who have taken the time to send an email to the show or leave us a thoughtful review on your favorite podcast platform. We got a review on Apple Podcasts from a user called I'm Bored that says, this is my favorite podcast ever and almost the only one that I listen to, the best thing ever. That is such a kind review, I'm Bored. Thanks a lot. And for the five-star rating, we appreciate that feedback and all the feedback we get from listeners. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU Radio Network of Programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed Podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed.